The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to the program. Today you'll be hearing from several publicly traded companies that as part of their fiduciary duty to grow their shareholder base, have hired us to expose them to our audience for potential investment consideration. Before making an investment decision, I encourage you to do your own research on each company. All of our current sponsors are featured on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You can click through their banners or logos to their websites. We'll also speak to analysts on this program who will help to educate us and inform us as to what is happening in the financial world markets, etc. Let's begin the program. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. I'm actually getting excited here. I'd like to say we're almost there, and we may be there at the bottom already. Even if we're not, you know, I think we're a lot closer than we think. I really think that there's, uh, at least for resource stocks, a lot of them have already bottomed. I'm looking at market activity here the last couple of days of the year. I think a lot of the stock's bottom is already in place. We're seeing some uh, slight bounces off the bottom. Tax law season is, is wrapping up here. I really am excited about this, you know. I've got to say, we still see the outside chance that gold could make one more quick, hard move to the downside that could take us down to this 1420 range. There's incredible support down in this range. Now, it's a long way from where we are up here in the 1570 or so range as we speak. But I think if this would happen, it's going to happen really quick based on some news in the world, but something that's going to take us down in a hurry. If this happens, I love to say that this is great. This is just going to be wonderful because it's going to give everybody incredible buying opportunities especially for those that are not yet in the resource sector. Wouldn't it have to be really great news for gold to drop that steeply? It's one of those things when you come to news, you just don't know how the hell it's going to be perceived, you know, by the investors of the world. Following some of the other analysts out there that think that this could happen down to the 1420 range, a lot of their work is purely technical analysis here, no fundamentals. Now, normally the fundamentals show up being the news-driven event that's going to make the technicals look good, and it all kind of comes together. It's hard to believe what could really happen here that quick to take us down. You know, I'm not smart enough to know everything that's going on in these markets. If we were all smart, none of us would need to be writing investment services. We'd all be just filthy rich, and we'd have the whole game figured out, right? We try to stay on top of the news. We follow a lot of analysts ourselves, a lot of different opinions. So we're holding out that possibility that we could go down pretty hard in gold. I almost think, oh, when you come 
back to looking at gold stocks, if you want to go and look at a chart on the HUI, the Gold Bugs Index, I think we've got a good, solid support in here in this 470 to 480 range. We went down intraday a couple of days ago, tested this, rebounded really strong later in the afternoon, and now we're holding substantially above this support. And my gut is that even if gold would go down hard right here, I think that support range in the HUI is going to hold. And so we built an incredible base up here in the higher level of the 470 to over 600 range. But this is base building that's going to, when we break it out to the upside, it's going to take us to substantially higher prices. You know, we've all uh, had to really exercise a lot of patience here. And I know it, it, a lot of people have difficulty having the patience when you see your portfolio go down. Why are we in this sector? We're in this sector because when the market psychology changes, and it will, we can make a lot of money really quick. And I think that's where we are. We're either at the bottom or right sitting on top of it. And when this changes, then we'll have this opportunity to get our 500 percent gainers, 1,000 percent, 2,000 percent. And we always talk about the 10 baggers or the 20 baggers. And I think this is just in front of us. Well, you know, I'm a subscriber to PreciousMetalsWarrants.com, your website. And as a subscriber, I received a news alert this morning. You picked up three cheap stocks without mentioning their names. Uh, you're buying right now. I'm just looking at little stocks. And I know this will sound outrageous to listeners. I think actually there were four stocks all around six cents. Three uranium stocks that have just been beaten down miserably, and one a little small royalty company. I'd already had positions in all four of the companies, but I could not resist seeing these things at six cents, thinking I've got to top off my positions here at the end of the year. This is not going to last forever. And when these things pop, it would be nothing for them to double in price really quick. Once the selling pressure's off, I thought if you're ever going to buy these things, you've got to step in now. So yes, I've, you know, still am very aggressive here and truly believe in where these markets are going. And that is substantially higher in the coming months and in the next few years. Nobody knows what's going to happen, you know, in the next couple of days or next week or two. I'm fully confident of where we're going. It's been a rough year, and I think this is going to be behind us here really soon, and it's going to be a lot better times for all of us. Well, Dudley, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I wish you the best in 2012. The website, again, is PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. I've been speaking with Dudley Baker, a friend, comrade, and fellow peer in the sector, if you will. Dudley, thanks so much for joining us today. No, it's great to be here, Ellis. And you can listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Want to make money in resource stocks? Stay informed with Resource World Magazine, covering the latest developments in mining, oil, and gas and alternative energy. Subscribe now to save half off the newsstand price. Simply visit resourceworldmag.com or call 604-484-3800. Or pick up the latest edition at select book and magazine outlets. Resource World Magazine, your insight into the world of resource investment. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation. Trading on the New York Stock exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalties Buck Reef Project is an advanced stage gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's TanzanianRoyalty.com. 
In this segment, I'll be speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the president of Apogee Silver Limited, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced-stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006 through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company, formerly Apex Silver. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of 18 cents and is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. Neil, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Why don't you introduce Apogee to our audience? Well, Apogee is a silver-based mining company listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol APE. And we're a silver-focused mining company with our main assets in Bolivia and Chile. We have three projects with all with 43101 resources. The strategy is to develop our flagship project, which is Pulukaya Resource in southern Bolivia, and bring it into production in the near to medium term. And then from there, we'll grow the company. We have a very strong base of shareholders, including called Lean Mines, who own just under 9% of the company. Spot Asset Management, really Eric Spots, Mr. Silver in the, in the industry as you know, and that company's got just over 18% of our company. And we're also supported by a number of other funds, including Pine Tree, Aberdeen, and the Chinese Mining United Fund, which is a group of three Chinese companies that have also taken an interest in us. And I think we've got a fairly favorable valuation compared to our other silver peers, silver producers. Now, you recently announced with regard to the Polakaya deposit, a 43-101 compliant resource of 29 million ounces indicated silver and 26 million ounces inferred. That's close to a potential $1.7 billion in resource, quite prolific. How advanced is this project? Well, we've just completed a rather large drilling program for that resource update, about 23,000 meters of drilling, and we're continuing our aggressive drilling program. It's an old historical mine that produced over 600 million ounces of silver between, I think it's 1883 and 1958. It was nationalized in 1958, and unfortunately, not a lot of money was spent on developing the infrastructure, so it closed around about the same time, and it's been closed ever since. We were fortunate enough to get hold of the company in 2006 and have been doing a lot of exploration and I was brought onto the board as the CEO in June this year because of my mining background. I'm a mining engineer that specializes in building mines. I've got 17 odd years experience in Africa. I'm South African originally and South America including Peru and I took on this role because I had a look at the resource and I thought it was a really fantastic resource for taking forward into production. So our board is very supportive to me and we've basically got a strategy to take it into production on a large scale in 2015. But leading up to that, we'll be building a pilot plant of 400 tonnes per day during the course of next year. And we have to have it commissioned by the end of next year. So we should see some early stage production from that, which will also be supporting our feasibility study for the larger mine going forward, and it'll be generating early cash flow. So I think it's a very exciting story. Well, you've got $16 million in the bank. Will you be able to generate cash flow from early production to continue on with further exploration efforts in that area? 
certainly once we get the plant running and the mine running, we will be able to generate free cash flow from there to be able to continue our exploration. But we're still calculating the numbers and as part of our feasibility study, but I've got a vision of growing the mine to around about 8 million ounces produced per year, hopefully around 2015. That's subject to what comes out in the feasibility study. And to grow a mine that size, we'll obviously need to finance that and take it from there. With Sprott and Pine Tree and the others that you mentioned, that shouldn't be a problem, should you need to go back and obtain more capital down the road. Absolutely, and we're also looking at debt financing facility with the pension funds in Bolivia. Some people are concerned about Bolivia as an investment destination, and I think it would be really good if uh, we could reduce that sovereign risk by actually raising cash locally. And we were initially a little bit not concerned about whether this is really that feasible, but I've heard that Pan American Silver were able to raise $60 million for their mine, San Vicente in Bolivia. We feel we were able to raise a fair amount of money that way. Well, it's not a done deal yet. It's something we're definitely looking at. Are you building a strategic relationship with the local government? Absolutely. We're actually partners with the government in this venture. The mines are all nationalized, so we have a lease agreement that gives us a hundred percent control of the asset for a two and a half percent royalty, which goes to Campanera Minera de Bolivia, which is a Bolivian state-owned mining company. And then we also pay a one point five percent royalty. There's a total of four percent royalty for the rights to the property. And we have two partners, one of them being the government and the other one being the community. And I think that really helps us a lot because good to have your community on side when you're going through permitting processes and so on. Relationship with the community and the government is everything in that part of the world. And, you know, we take that very seriously to make sure we maintain good relations, healthy relations with the local communities. Often mining companies overlook these things and end up having problems with the communities. We've taken the stance that we want to develop this mine for Bolivians in Bolivia. So it's a Bolivian mine and people in the area must benefit. With a share price of 18 cents, how do you compare to your peers in the area? Tell us about your share structure as well, Neil. Our market cap is around $50, $55 million at that price. We have just under 300 million shares outstanding. And we have, as of October, I think we had $16 million in cash. No debt. We do have some warrants outstanding. There are a few coming out uh, at $0.14 cents this month. And then uh, we have a few more coming through in May next year. And what about valuation against your peers? Uh, there's three ways you can value a company like ours. One is on a NPV multiple, if you've got a life of mine plan or something like that, which we have. The other way is to do a cash flow comparable, as a cash flow multiple. And third way is to compare the resources in the ground. And I'll start with that one. Our enterprise value is around about $50 million. Silver ounces in the ground is total ounces inferred and indicated together, including our property in Chile, is $98 million. Uh, so that brings you up to 80 cents per silver ounce in the ground, which is certainly a lot less than our peers. If you look at Silver Fortuna, we like to compare ourselves against Silver Fortuna, who've got a resource of around 90 million ounces. Their share price is currently $8.71, and the enterprise value per silver ounce is about $8. We're sort of at 50 cents to 80 cents. The multiples are significant. Obviously, they're in production. They're producing 1 to 2 million ounces of silver per year now. They've got two mines. We kind of smart ourselves on the same kind of business model that they had, which was, you know, start a smaller mine, get going, start to produce cash flow, and then grow that mine. So that's the same kind of model that we have. But I think once we get into production, we'll certainly see a significant uptick in enterprise value as we come into production. I've been speaking with Neil Ringdahl, president of Apogee Silver trading on the TSX Venture Exchange 
under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as A-G-E-E-F. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat leach operation. Scott, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Alice. As usual, it's a a pleasure to be here. Since we last spoke, you released news about your Phase 2 drilling program at La Jolla. Tell us about that. As you know, we completed the Phase 1 earlier this year and released a bunch of results on that. Our Phase 2 is underway. It's about a $3 million program that will obviously continue the extension of the mineralized zones that we've seen so far in Phase 1. We were really pleased with Phase 1. We're in the process of completing a NI43-101 resource estimate and, and technical report. And we hope to release that probably the first week in January. That will give us a, a resource on the Phase 1 area, which we will review and update as the drilling continues. Well, you expect some news to come out very soon then. This is not anything we're going to have to wait a month or two for. No, we shouldn't have to. The way we do those or the way we were allowed to do those is to make a press release on the resource numbers and then follow that up within, I think we have 45 days to file the report on CDAR. We want to try and keep those two events as close together as possible so that people can follow up on the information on the press release and see it in the report. And of course, the report gives you a much more detailed look at the nature of the resource and the grades and tonnages and those sorts of things. So we're hoping to have both of those done by the end of January. You're one of the few silver juniors that's performing extremely well in this downward trending market. Do you believe that it's because of the work you're doing in the ground at Santa Elena and La Jolla, or is it relative to the volatility with silver right now? I think the volatility of silver has a little bit to do with it, but I don't think as much as our operations at Santa Elena and the expectations building on the La Jolla. As a number of people know from our previous conversations, the Santa Elena production is going very well. We've reported on two quarters this year. Each has been better than the last, and our fourth quarter this year has been very, very good from a production point of view and from a profitability point of view. So I think people look at that as a stabilizing factor from our stock price perspective. We've got good solid cash flow. Next year should be a banner year for a number of reasons for us. We'll have a full year of production, and I think the gold and silver prices are going to hold up very well. So we have that stabilizing base, if you will, in in terms of cash flow and production. And on the other side of things, the reporting that we've done on La Jolla to date has indicated that we may have our teeth into a sizable deposit that people are in, you know, 
are sort of waiting in anticipation of further news on it. So I think the combination of those two things are the main reason for the resilience in our share prices. Your company seems that potentially it may be undervalued at the current share price near $2. I would certainly agree with that, Alice. I think the $2 value reflects in part the value of Santa Elena in its current state. We have a sizable expansion program going on there that will double that production in the next two to three years. I think our current market price reflects at least the operations that we have there now. I don't think there's much built into that price in terms of that expansion plan. And I don't think there's very much built into the share price in terms of the potential for La Jolla. So the possibility of a serious upside move on our share price is very good. And that's reflected in the analysts that are covering us. Can't accord genuity. Their analyst has a target price, I think, of about 375 right now. And Jennings Capital, their analyst out of Toronto, has a target price of I believe it's $5 at this point. And those two target prices do give some value to La Jolla down the road. We haven't seen any huge inclines in the last two months. It's been more or less a gradual and steady uptick generally, even in a down market. You've headed up about 30 to 40% because the increase hasn't been an extreme spike. It would seem that the risk of a sharp decline would not be as strong. Wouldn't you agree? That would certainly be my sense, looking at the performance of the stock to date. We did make a substantial move, as you pointed out. It seems to be consolidating here nicely at, you know, between $1.90 and 220 And I think that's healthy from a going forward perspective to have it move reasonably well, consolidate, and then make another move. And I think when we announce the result of our phase one resource estimates and are able to articulate the potential based on those resources, uh, I think we'll see another upward move fairly quickly. What can we see for 2012 in general? 2012, from a corporate perspective, I think we'll have a very, very good year with Santa Elena in terms of production. We have everything working at an optimum rate right now. I think we've reached that steady state that is crucial in a heat bleach operation to have your mine and crusher producing consistently and getting material on the pad for leaching. So we think our production will be consistent month over month. Personally, I anticipate a fairly strong move in both silver and gold prices, which will certainly improve our revenue stream. We'll be working on the expansion plan at Santa Elena. We'll be calling an underground decline. That'll get us a look at the deposit below the open pit, and that'll give us a good sense of what kind of reserves and resources we can expect there. So Santa Elena will go along very nicely, create a, a nice cash flow base for us, and we will be paid out of our debt. We'll have our hedge position on the gold reduced fairly dramatically for 2012. And of course, uh, all of our silver production is free to hit the spot market. The La Jolla project, we're approaching that very aggressively. We have a $3 million budget laid out for probably the first half of the year. We expect to drill about 80 holes in that period to define the main mineralized trend that we've identified there, plus get a feel for the three other targets that we've identified on that property. Well, I definitely appreciate the update, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Thanks for joining us. Thanks once again, Alice. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. 
Want to make money in resource stocks? Stay informed with Resource World Magazine, covering the latest developments in mining, oil, and gas and alternative energy. Subscribe now to save half off the newsstand price. Simply visit resourceworldmag.com or call 604-484-3800. Or pick up the latest edition at select book and magazine outlets. Resource World Magazine, your insight into the world of resource investment. Welcome back to the program, Greedy Guru. Good afternoon, Alice. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastically well. Thank you for asking. Listen, I'm at your website right now, thegreedyguru.com, and the caption at the top is, the only resource investment service you will ever need. Why is that? Well, in short, the only resource investment service you will ever need is because we follow the topics of the pros, the other analysts in the business, and we, uh, we take their information and we analyze it further. So we are looking at a refined list of companies that are more interesting than others due to the interest of, of other professionals in the business. Well, these markets are very, very risky, at least in the short term. The potential exists to lose money. Again, on your website, you have a so-called newbie alert followed by the caption, these markets will chew you up and spit you out. How do we avoid that with your committee of analysts? Well, quite honestly, if you look at the markets today, I'm sitting pretty negative as well as gold. So it, it seems like our, our picks as of right now and the methodology we use to, to refine those picks is holding up yeah, not, not, only, not only better than expected, but fantastically. Um, on balance, every stock that, that we've issued by recommendations on since the launch has, has performed um, very well. Uh, so, so even in the current market conditions, we're looking at, at companies that are not only sound, but are, are recommended by a lot of, of analysts that have, that have spent the time to, to look into each one of these companies and see why they're worth what they're worth, why, what the potential of them is in the future. Now, each, each one of these companies has its own story. So you can hear a story from each analyst, and everybody's got their their perspective that makes them either really eager or, or really negative about any particular company. But when you combine those those analyses from several different uh, professionals in the business, you, you are able to really pinpoint which one, whether it be a great market or a horrible market, are still going to perform. Now, if this was rip-roaring bull market right now, we would be looking at, you know, already the, the hundreds of percent gains in everything. Um, and that, that's, our, that's our opinion as of right now. But on balance, we're looking at, at great gains even in a nasty market. So I think, I think the methodology is, is very solid, and I believe the analysts we follow are also very solid. Now, if you'd followed any one of those analysts specifically, you, you could seriously be, you know, entering just the, the same negative environment that everybody else is. So we're, we're really trying to refine that and say, okay, well, out of all of these companies available, which ones are still going to perform, whether the market's good, bad, or flat? And I think, I, I, in fact, I not only think, I'm, I'm looking at the results right now. We, we do track the performance of the Greedy Guru's picks and, and our buy and sell recommendations. And as of right now, on balance, we, we have nothing that's, uh, that's, that's really had a substantial hit. In fact, we've had some pretty substantial gains. Now, I'm a subscriber to thegreedyguru.com. And what you do is you're offering recommendations whether to buy, hold, or sell. These are not just buy recommendations. Right, right. No, and that's normally the key. It's not just the key as to, to when to buy something. It's the target price you want to buy it at, the time you want to get out. The, you know, the, the times when, even though the stock might look fantastic, you know, and, and we have a good example right now where we, where we put a hold on something that, that was performing, but at the same time, the, the price to jump into it might be a little bit outside of where we wanted to be. So we went ahead and issued the hold recommendation. Not to say the company's not great, not to say it's not going to go where we want, but the percentage gains we initially look for when entering a new company are, are really geared around their, their initial target price as to what we get into. So at each stage of the game, whether it be a week after someone subscribes a month or a year, each stage will have its own buy, hold, or sell recommendations based on the current market conditions, not just the story itself. You're basically a new service, and being a new service, you have an introductory offer that's in place until January 15th. Tell us about that, Greedy Guru. Well, 
introductory offer is $4.95 annually and includes a full range of the service, all the buy, sell, and hold recommendations, as well as, as any news releases and, and, uh, and further analysis on each of the companies. It uh, gives, gives any of the subscribers the access to our audios and our emails that go out as well as any of the information that we find pertinent to the uh, resource sector that we are actually following at the moment. So that's about $40 a month, basically, for the service. Yes, and any serious investor should know that's just a very menial, menial amount of money just to just to, to have a select group of stocks that are going to perform and, and quite honestly, outperform the vast majority of the analysts' individual recommendations because it's combining all of the analysts' recommendations. GreedyGuru.com. I've been speaking with the Greedy Guru. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. You should be feeling the effects of brain growth by now. Take a moment and relax. You can always catch up online at our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all the programs there, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's ANLKY. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program. Uh, hi, Alice. Nice to be with you again. Now, you've been on the road a great deal lately. What have you been doing? I've just spent nearly two weeks in Hong Kong. There were actually three conferences there. There was a Daiwa, the big Japanese investment bank, had a conference where I was participating, followed by a mineral sands conference, zirconium, titanium, and obviously because of our involvement in the zirconium industry, very important for us. And then followed up with a rare earth conference, which was very good also. Large attendances at both those two conferences, uh, 450 at the mineral sands conference, three. 150 at the Rare Earth Conference. A lot of good information. You know, nowhere near the pessimism about the rare earth prices that the media seems to have jumped on. It. The conference was very good in the sense that there was a far more optimism about the industry where it was going to go. But certainly prices are down, but they're still way, way above what they were even eight, nine months ago. So prices are still very strong, and there was a great deal of optimism about where the industry was going to go. Speaking of zirconium and heavy rare earths, while you were on the road, your company released news about an ore reserve upgrade at Dubbo. Would you like to tell us about that? Basically, uh, what we've done is publish an upgraded reserve statement for the Dubbo Zirconia project. This is a very important step because reserves are a, a step above resources. Resources just define the material in the ground, whereas reserves mean that there's an economic imprint feasibility done on it. And so that 36 million tonnes that we've identified as open pitable reserves gives us at least a start-up or initial start-up mine life of 36 years. So it's a very important step with the project going forward. What is the potential revenue during that time period? for the company? Substantial. Basically, the revenues are around about $500 million a year. So if you take $500 million and multiply it by 36, you get something like $18 billion revenue over that 36-year period. So it's a substantial project and substantial revenue generating capacities. You know, I sort of did the math before doing this interview, and quite honestly, I couldn't believe my eyes. Of course, it's not the actual profit. I mean, the cash flow out of that's about, well, it's $300 million a year cash flow which then multiply by 36, you get something like $10 billion a year cash flow over that 36 years. So, yeah, it still is a, a very, very substantial uh, return. That makes you a major player in any industry in Australia, correct? 
It does. Yes, it does. Yeah, certainly a major mining operation. And importantly for us, a very significant player in the zirconium industry and the heavier earth industry, which is you know, really where we've been targeting now for 15 years. When you're talking about that kind of revenue, what will you be doing with the money? It's a, it's, it's a good good question, actually. I mean, we genuinely believe we can pay dividends. I mean, that's the board's strategy. We've had it now for a number of years. We felt that when this project got up in production, that would be the capability. Again, once we've paid back all capital facilities, etc., we're in a position to pay dividends, and major shareholders believe in that concept as well. So we genuinely believe we'll be a significant dividend-paying company. Now, you expect to be going into production with gold at the Tommingley project in 2013. Let's talk about that. There's a process for approvals, an environmental impact statement. There's a process that the state goes through, and one of the final stages is that it goes on what they call public display or public exhibition. So for 28 days, that environmental statement or that environmental report is available to the public. People can look at it. They can comment. They can lodge objections. So it's an important part of the process. And once that 28-day period is up, if there are no substantial objections, the state then usually approves the project to go ahead. If there are significant issues, then we have to come back and address them and make sure that we comply again. And eventually that goes back to the state, who then decide, have we complied? Have we met all the new conditions? So we remain very confident the project has no other major environmental impacts. Pretty confident we'll get the final go-ahead sometime in the new year. It may be February, March before we get that go-ahead, but at least this is a, another big step forward. Well, you've got a great deal of work to do between Double and Tomley with the jobs you're creating for these two projects and those teams. How are you handling the infrastructure of the company itself? Again, important thing. I mean, historically, we've run two development teams, one for the Gold Project, one for the Zirconia Project, and those two teams are intimately involved with taking it forward. Now obviously when you go from conceptual feasibility study through to construction, the whole thing changes. So Alcan over the next six months will go through a transition where we'll take on senior employees to take the Tomingley project through development and then into production and then obviously put on all the operating staff when we're ready to go. With Dubbo we're still a good 12 months away from getting to that point where we can start proceeding we've got to get the financing in place, the approvals in place and that should be uh, the target for that's by the end of next year then Dubbo will go through that next transition. Fortunately the area we operate is an area with a substantial existing workforce, I mean it's a major agriculture cultural region that also has a number of significant operating mines. So there is a good workforce that's already available and, and we don't really anticipate having difficulty getting the right people to, to run these projects. Now you mentioned financing. What kind of money do you need to get both these projects going? Are you going to the market for it or do you have other ways of raising the cash? With Tommingley, it's about $90 million Australian dollar capital cost. We have a $45 million facility on offer to us from Credit Suisse, the large international bank. The other $45 we'll have to raise and we're looking at the options of doing that and that probably will mean us going to the market at some stage to raise that $45 million. Now Dubbo said still 12 months out. The total capital for that was about $890 million, but on that $890 there's something like $180 million of that is made up of contingencies and EPCMs, add-on type things. So we think the actual real number will be closer to 750 or 800 for that project going forward. And right now there are a number of options available to us and one of them is a small strategic 
feed Excel down of part of the project and we think we can do that with an escalator to NPV value. So the current model has an NPV of $1.2 billion. We think we could sell 10% for maybe $200 or $300 million. Then there's interestingly quite a large amount of funding available from government agencies and these are certainly Japan, Korea, European countries now are really putting up loan facilities to ensure that those countries get access to these strategic metals and applies to both the zirconium and the rare earths. To a lesser extent, niobium, but it's still important. There's substantial fund available from those sources as well. And then finally, again, just normal commercial death, then equity. And we've tried to target ourselves to being fairly minimal impact as far as the equity market is concerned. And we're trying to minimise the uh, the impact on the equity side of the business and, and get all the other financing applications or components in first. Rare metal prices are a bit depressed at the moment, but over the long run, that's certainly most likely not going to be the case. We remain very positive about the business, the whole business, the zirconium business particularly. There will certainly be a flat period now, maybe six months, while we get through this latest financial situation. But as we go forward into the second half of 2012 and into 2013, we're very confident that the zirconium price will continue to escalate. The rare earths, it'll go through a transition over the next four or five years when the big producers like Molycorp, Linus come on stream. Some of the bulk volume rare earths like Lanthanum, Cerium, they may well come down further in price, but the key ones, neodymium and then the heavies, dysprosium, terbium, yttrium, I think those prices will remain strong for a long time, unless there's again a major change in the supply chain over the next 10, even to 20 years. So we remain very positive about this business and where we're going to be situated in it starting 2014. Ian, it's always great to catch up with you. I look forward to continued positive news coming from Dubbo and Tom Lee. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. A pleasure as usual. Once again, I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, President and Managing Director of Alkane Resources. Alkane trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's TanzanianRoyalty.com. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55% interest in the Advanced Stage Buck Reef Gold Mine Development Project, which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Mr. Sinclair was a general partner and member of the executive committee of two New York stock exchange firms and the president of a commodities clearing firm, as well as Global Arbitrage, a derivative dealer in metals and currencies, and we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest 
on the Ellis Martin Report. Thanks for joining us today, Jim. It's a great day to be here. Now, looking back on 2011, what was the biggest event, in your opinion, affecting the financial markets, and how will this event continue to unfold in 2012? Well, the biggest event facing the market in 2011 has been the ongoing crisis in focus of the media of the euro. The very interesting contradiction, though, is that for all of the focus and all of the problems the euro has had, it's not too far away from 130. In other words, a big to-do about nothing, as Shakespeare would say? Well, it's, it's just a very interesting point. It has to attract your attention. It's something that it's impossible to ignore. I mean, if you were long at 145, 130 would not be a pleasant place to be, or slightly under 130. But it's also very surprising with the depth of the problems and with the media and general investment house outlook that the problem is severe and not going away, that the price isn't really down at 119 or challenging the old low. If this isn't going to change in the near future, if we're not going to see those kinds of lows, then what will the media focus on next? The uh, euro becomes boring because Germany fails to be totally self-interested, as was generally predicted. It's very possible that the crisis in the euro could somewhat grind on with these can-kicking efforts that we've seen, such as creating the international swaps in order to fund the ECB in order to fund the banks in dire need of liquidity. The bear case for gold, it focuses very much on the euro and a continuing crisis in the euro being dollar positive and euro negative. And the connection that people have, I'm suggesting the connection's right all the time, but the connection people have as a knee-jerk reaction that, of course, whichever way the dollar goes, gold will have to go in the opposite direction. So is there just no disconnect ahead as far as the media is concerned or the investing concerns? Is there no decoupling in place for gold and the dollar and the euro? It could very well be, but, you know, giving respect where respect is due to Pierre Lassonde, who has a feeling that gold is something of a 1500 to $1,700 venture in 2011. One would have to assume that the basis for that would be a continuation of a slow deterioration of the euro, a continuation of a slow appreciation in the U.S. dollar without any change in media focus primarily on Europe to focus back on the U.S. dollar. If there is a bare case on gold, I've just laid it out. Well, what does that mean? If there is a bear case in gold, do we see a continued gradual contraction? In, in the first part of the question is, is there? And the key element really is the assumed modest but firm recovery in U.S. economic statistics. You know, over the balance of December, there's been feeling that the housing market is picking up and, uh, you know, the auto market has been improved but going sideways. And when it's all added up by general commentary, it's considered to be modest but continual improvement. I think that the possibility, if there is one, that there's a hole in that analysis, the bear analysis on gold, is that, in fact, the U.S. economic recovery is more a product of statistical aberration and the ability for anyone employed or otherwise to borrow money to buy a car. That's the only place where your subprime loans are welcomed and are thriving. And that, in fact, the U.S. recovery is ethereal. And that then puts fundamental pressure on the U.S. dollar, while Pierre Lassonde's assumption that the euro kind of kicks along and continues, maybe the fact that Germany hasn't pulled out of the equation as everyone expected them to do. And the fact that the Fed has set up a QE situation, a rather unusual one, where it's the Fed that funds the ECB to do the deed, that in fact that comes into utilization. And the dollar relationship to the euro, in fact, 
favors the euro. It's something that nobody's looking at, something that nobody's considering, but that would be a, a firm bull case for gold, putting the U.S. dollar at a minus, let's say, a 10 to 25 percent on balance over the year could very well bring gold up into the high 2000s. It's something that nobody's really talking about, but to be understood well, first you have to always respect the other side. I mean, obviously I'm bullish on gold, and admittedly so. But if I don't listen to people who have credentials and who speak good fact and who have been relatively correct in the past, then I'm kidding myself. But out of the argument, that argument comes possibly, rather than 1,500, 1,700, 1,700, 2,100. I think what I've just reviewed with you is an approach that most people haven't put any focus on at all. And as I sit here after Christmas relaxing on a, a beautiful day before we talked today and took a nice long walk and thought very deeply about what's going on, I had a hard time getting away from the one case that nobody's giving too much credence to. And that would be a fundamental realization that the economic recovery in the U.S., does not have legs, and quite to the contrary, that there's a very strong possibility that we might experience indices at lower lows before we have any kind of a meaningful recovery here. That would be the case for 1,700, 2,100. Does that well-thought-through perception have real legs in an election year with a media that's friendly? No, to in the an election year, you'd expect everything possible to be done in order to benefit the statistics. But I think our listeners, and you and I talking, you wouldn't deny that everything possible to be done, in fact, has been done. I mean, when you go to QE, you are literally going to the extremes. Unemployment has been extended. Tax cuts are still in place. And I think you and I can assume that during an election year, there's very little going to be done that's going to invite inflation. But all that has been done has at best given us a modest recovery. The assumption that it's an election year, therefore economics should improve, has to be built on the foundation of the effectiveness of the tools at hand and the tools that have been used to create an improvement at this point in time. In retrospect, it's created a modest improvement, modestly, highly statistical. Unemployment's not really reversing itself. Housing market is not really reversing itself. And yes, you have to give respect to that possibility, but think for a moment moment if it didn't happen. Well, I almost don't know where to follow this up, Jim. Just say that that's a case we should look at. It's a case that's not being looked at. What you're saying is not ravingly popular, but it is pure common sense based on historical precedent. And if you were a betting man, you would put money on exactly what you said, that all stops will be pulled in order to uh, create some sort of a meaningful recovery in an election year. But then you've got to step back and say, well, what have they got left they haven't done? And there's not really a whole lot there. QE3 could be might be. We'll assume that everything, you know, Operation Twist, waste of time, maybe a year or two or three from now, it might mean something, but it has no immediate impact. Fiscal stimulation, it's been all monetary. I mean, the the degree of fiscal stimulation as compared to monetary stimulation just doesn't exist. And fiscal stimulation has historically been very much a, a part of some degrees of recoveries. Experience of 1932, through most of the things they had at it, nothing really happened. There is a reasonable possibility that the one case that's not being examined which is a negative fundamental dollar case, might be what we're going to see in this period, which is clearly a transition period. The end of 2011 through 2016, cyclically, is the last leg towards full valuation, if it is to occur, on the precious metal side. You know, my own feeling is gold will work its way back into a system. But, you know, that's an entirely other subject. We really just need to be vigilant in watching both the statistics that are released and also watching, you know, shadow statistics, for example. There is a constancy in uh, eliminating from the present statistical uh, equations 
all the changes that have taken place over the last many years. And going back to what things would have looked like in 1970, it had the same certain medic factors come in. As I say, I've been thinking about it an awful lot. I have a great respect for Pierre Lasson. When I put Pierre's argument together, which is a 1500-1700 argument, I asked myself, what's the only thing in that argument that would have a different effect where, in fact, the euro-dollar relationship may favor the euro. They kicked the can pretty good. They can possibly continue to kick the can if, in fact, the U.S. economic statistics stay as they are or become more robust. So to sum up, can we see either $1,600 gold in a year or a range between 1700 and 2100 which is still modest. I'm taking the 1700 to $2,100 expectation. For 2012. Right. Pierre would be looking for 15 to 17 As the president of Tanzanian royalty, how does any of this affect your leadership of the company during the next year? Both arguments on a strict analysis of potential profits as a result of an operation continue enthusiastic expansion of all the programs that you have. You'd really need a very significant drop in the price of gold because at what we call a half-gram cutoff, that's where you figure out how much gold in your 43-101s that you have. It's the basis for your definitive feasibility studies. The SEC requires that we use an average of the last three years in gold. So all of the figures are based on $1,024. So following the indications of the regulators, not everybody does, and you don't have to. You can speculate at different prices if you choose. But when you do your studies, they have to be done at 1024 I don't see any situation that puts 1024 into danger, no situation, therefore, putting the profit margin into danger. Therefore, as a business, no situation which would put the entity as a business in danger. What markets do is, is their own thing. But the question you asked is a business question. And so the projections on which we've made the investments are at a price of gold, which is so conservative that there'd be no need to do the opposite, which would be to slow down and to protect. We project two years forward, and that projection, I think, is sustained by any analysis of the market now. That's a business answer to your question. Well, that's the one I wanted, actually. So, uh... And, you know, sometimes you can't let markets and the wildness of markets today and the illegitimacy of markets in the sense that they're so manipulated. Take your eye off the ball, which is that you're going to be running a plant, you're digging a hole, you're processing ore, and you're delivering to a marketplace. And in between, there's a thing called a profit margin. And as long as that profit margin is sound and qualifies you in terms of an internal rate of return, then the business goes forward. In fact, I honestly believe that the future of all gold shares are that they're going to go back to exactly what they were in the 1940s. They're going to become the utilities. They're going to be yielding situations, and they're going to compete on price for many reasons, of course. But a very important reason for their competition will be their willingness and capacity to pay dividends. Dividend-paying stocks, essentially, are what everyone's going to be looking for during the next three, four, five years. Well, the gold fellows, you know, if they can just control the personal greed, every major producer out there could wow you with a dividend. And the argument that business has to go forward is, you know, and that you have to reinvest into the business is a simple question of resources you have. In other words, this isn't brain surgery. I mean, it's complex, believe me. To actually do it, it's, it's a hell of a complex business. But from the standpoint of understanding the important criteria of analysis, internal analysis, pretty simple. So they can right now 
if the companies would back off a little bit on the corporate jets and meetings at the country club, there isn't a producer out there that couldn't be right now giving out extraordinary dividends. I would say that the ones that have to compete, companies like ourselves, will have to consider giving dividends in kind or cash. That's what Shenley did in the 1940s. If I could divert for a minute, but still on subject. Shenley offered their stockholders either whiskey or cash. And if you chose whiskey, you got a warehouse receipt. A market actually started in the warehouse receipts because, you know, when have you ever seen the price of liquor go down? So people were actually buying and selling the warehouse receipts in the over-the-counter market. I wouldn't be surprised to see some very wise metals companies, especially some of the silver producers, recognizing that they actually might give dividends in kind, exactly the way Shenley did it. Take your choice, cash or kind. That pretty heavy competition, especially because it would be complex for the shorts, and the shorts certainly do live in the silver stocks. It would be very hard for the shorts to be both short the stock and short a dividend in kind. It means getting delivery. Right now, you know, the supply and the physical markets are not that thick. You can't always, physical market and the paper market are two entirely different animals. So if the junior producers, silver companies actually took the lead in that, I think they'd find a very interesting combination of moving towards a utility and also taking care of those who buy precious metals based on the assumption that all currencies over time lose value. Interesting. In this market, do you see any of these small exploration companies, gold and silver companies with stocks as low as 20, 10 cents a share right now that floundering along, really not doing anything? Do you see them possibly falling by the wayside? Here's the difference. You're running a company that the stock price has declined sharply. You're running a company where the price has declined significantly. That's basically the two categories you have. Who's got money? Because the low price in the stock cuts off its financing. So if the hedge funds had a strategy for their shorts and the mistreatment of the stocks, the strategy would have to be focused on the fact of starving the company from finance in a capital-intensive industry. And they've done that pretty well for some of the ones, as you say, going along at 10 cents. So your question there is, yeah, they're going to go by the wayside, but the wayside's going to be somebody else. If you were managing those companies and didn't have to take the salary in order to be able to live off it, what you'd really do is put yourself on care and maintenance, meaning just shut it down. Don't take the chance of being put out of business. You've got enough money to, to take care of pumps you need if, in fact, you even have a hole open. The companies that are in the same category that fortuitously have some money will be looking to acquire. The ones that have cash flow will be the ultimate acquirers. So the market depreciates the price, but the only way you put a company like that out of business is if they can't raise any capital. So it's all a question of what's in the treasury and what do they need a month to live on, to answer your question. Yes, some will go by the wayside, but the wayside will be acquisition. Will there be any acquisitions for Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation then? Well, we've got $30 million in cash, so we don't fall into the category of not being able to finance. But I will tell you that you know my job and my duty to myself and to my stockholders is to maximize our values however I do it. And there'll be a time when you've brought your projects to full production. And that's the time you'll be looking to maximize your values, and it will depend. If you can't maximize in the marketplace, of course you sell the company. So the answer to that is the market will tell us. But, you know, fortuitously, we're capitalized through to production. So, you know, we don't have that weakness in our equation, the inability to finance. We've got the money. Yet you're not really a gambler. You're a conservative individual, I would say. Well, I'm a speculator as an individual, but not as a businessman. As a businessman, you could not be more conservative. Well, you couldn't wear two more different hats then, could you? No. Well, basically, I was considered to be the largest gold trader in the 1970s market. I'm certainly not in this one because of the violence in the marketplace. And, of course, you know, when you're 35, you you don't believe you could ever fail. And when you're 70, you know better. Okay? (laughs) So, yeah, I run a business on a very conservative nature. Cash is king. And cash is 
is the only thing that will keep the uh, gold exploration junior development junior producer from being gobbled up by somebody else. Well, Jim, as usual, I've enjoyed speaking with you today, and I wish you a wonderful new year. I look forward to speaking with you next week. And I enjoyed very much looking at both sides of the equation. I thank you for that opportunity, because if you lose respect for others' views, you're stupid. I appreciate what seems to be a really unbiased attitude about the way you conduct your speculation, your analysis, and the way you helm your company. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to discuss it. I gave my CFO his instructions. Protect our capital with your life. Okay. I've been speaking with Jim Sinclair, the president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading under the symbol TRX on the Amex. Just type in TRX. Listen to the segment again and find a link to Tanzanian Royalty's website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. What? It's over? No, it can't be true! What will I do? What will I say? What? Oh, oh, this. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Then they run right back to work and get jiggy with getting busy. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is a unit of Big Sky Productions Incorporated. For Ellis Martin, this is Cool Voice Guy. Ciao, babies. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.